I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The two biggest motivators in politics and, for that matter, in war, are fear and reassurance. Pumped-up fear of the other and use of a greatly idealized picture of home and hearth. In that way, people sent to war have the motivation to protect the peaceful, neighborly village that they love against the monsters from away who would destroy that pastoral vision. It's been the same pattern for many, many years and many versions of nationalism, which have led to terrible violence, wars which have killed millions. One vital ingredient is the mythologizing, the idealizing of a beloved place that never really was. Here in 21st century America, the myth of Sheriff Andy Griffith's mythic peaceful town of Mayberry is the wished-for vision that glues together the ugly violence of today's white supremacism. Oh, but it looks so innocent. Just people yearning for a peaceful, homogeneous small town in the geographic middle of the U.S. This foundational belief system is examined in the new book, Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy and the American Midwest, that's the focus of our discussion today on Keeping Democracy Alive with authors Britt Halverson and Joshua Reno, both anthropology professors. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Well, today we'll look at the question of why the homogeneous image of the rural farming Midwest so pers persuasively mobilized in the middle commercial on Super Bowl a year ago has persisted for so long and what it means for the aggressive nationalism and white supremacy we see still growing today. With the trumped-up fear of the others, people with darker skin whose native language is not the king's English, invading America, this imagined Heartland's residents are white rural citizens who are imagined to be humble, hardworking, virtuous, and productive in just trying to cultivate the land peacefully. Myths are so reassuring and powerful. Truth is often just too inconvenient, but it needs to be looked at. Brett Halverson is a cultural anthropologist who studies global Christianity, aid, medical waste, and whiteness in the Midwest, U.S., and Madagascar. She received her Ph.D. from the University of Michigan and is currently associate professor at Colby College in Maine. She's also the author of uh, Conversionary Sites, Transforming Medical Aid and Global Christianity from Madagascar to Minnesota. Sounds interesting. And Josh Reno is a professor in the Department of Anthropology at Binghamton University in New York. He's the author of Waste Away, Working and Living with a North American Landfill, and military waste, the unexpected consequences of permanent war readiness. He's also done research and written in the fields of critical disability studies, biosemiotics, and critical race theory. 
I don't know what biosemiotics is, but I'm glad somebody's studying it. Well, again, the study of Western history and politics too often does not employ the tools offered in anthropology and thus misses crucial factors which shaped the various, usually bad, outcomes. What about your work in teaching anthropology led you to research and write about this topic? That's a really, really great question. And thanks so much again for having us um, with you today, Bert. Um, Josh and I actually had some pretty unusual training for anthropologists. We were both trained at the University of Michigan, but we were also part of a research center that was called the Center for the Ethnography of Everyday Life. And it was funded by the Alfred Sloan Foundation. And there were research centers like it across the country. And ours was dedicated to looking at issues of work and family in the Midwest region. And there were political scientists, demographers, sociologists, anthropologists, historians, all interested in these issues. So we had that whole background training. Um, we were both went on to do individual research projects in Midwest communities, long-term ones that were 15 plus years. Um, and so around, I would say 2015, um, 2016, we started to notice Josh and I, an uptick in uses of the Midwest in the national media and political discussions and references to a homogenous Midwest, a like very white narrative of the region. And we started to ask a series of questions about that um, with each other based on that deep training that we'd had in Midwest history. And on the other hand, we'd both been teaching in anthropology classrooms for 15 years. And we had done a lot of teaching around topics of race and nationalism and belonging and identity. And for me, one of the things I had noticed was how easy it was to, in some cases, for students to interpret racism as just a matter of individual prejudice uh, within a person, individual person. And so in my classes, I had done a lot of work surrounding racism as a cultural or systemic issue that involved a great deal more um, mm -hmm. than individual experiences. And so that's something we really take up in this book as we look much more deeply at all of the narratives and myths and ways they deal with or erase racial diversity. Yeah, it's not just individuals. And a, a, friend, a black friend of mine kind of shocked me a while ago when he said that uh, racists don't even know they're racist. It's just kind of built into the culture. And I, I, I've had to think about that quite a bit since then. And mm -hmm. When I was visiting my daughter in South Central Pennsylvania a few years ago, I, I realized it was solid Trump country. And I was wondering why. I had to think about it for a while. It, it occurred to me that this demographic felt like they worked hard, played by the rules, but just didn't get ahead. And it was solidly white, of course. And that, frankly, the Democratic Party flew over their world. It didn't pay attention to them. They felt neglected, taken for granted. How do you think the projection of an idealized heartland where people work hard, uh, get, you know, make good money uh, and and do get ahead. How about th this projection of an idealized heartland that is fair onto this reality affected the energy of white supremacy, which has grown since 2016, and Trumpism? Uh, it's a it's a it's a tough question and it's a good one. And one thing that makes it tough is you know we would never claim that 
you know, again, just to go back to Britt's point a second ago about the difference between racism and white supremacy, like we, we certainly wouldn't claim, and I know you're not claiming, uh, that, you know, the people in that town, right, all of them are racist or something, right? right. And that's and so just about racism. The nice thing about your question is you're saying, you, you know, you make it about um, uh, what, what it means to them to feel neglected and to feel um, somehow left behind. And, and, you know, the question is, as you put it, you know, why do they think the world is fair? I mean, there's plenty of people who don't. And certainly in, in, you know, in a white supremacist society, like our own, like if you are not white, you you just know the world's not fair. You find that out pretty early on. Um, So why do they think the world's fair? But also why do they have some sense of, um, of, of, you know, deservingness of like, this was supposed to work out differently for us. We were promised something else or, or, you know, um, we, these things are meant to um, happen differently. And that kind of like nostalgia um, uh, or that kind of like desire for um, some past or some idealized other place, um, that's powerful even if one's never been there. Like you don't need to have had that ever been your experience, you know, um, to, uh, to be motivated by that. Um, and that's partly what Heartland mm. sort of imagery does is it, 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 it can be another place. It can be a place you've never been. It, it could be that you're from South Central uh, Pennsylvania, but you're seeing images of Kansas. Maybe you've never been there. But the idea that there's this other place where you know those people did work hard at one time and they got what they deserved at one time and they were independent and virtuous and all these other things, that is a motivator. But it's not so simple, you know, and of course as... You know, uh, um, a person goes to the ballot box and they like vote for white supremacy or something. But it does, as you put it, um, become sort of a fuel for this sense of longing or this sense of loss. Mm. Fuel and fires. Yeah, they they tend to go together. Interesting. And people can see the fire quite directly. But but the the motivation for it, uh, people don't look at very much, but we need to look at it if we want to make changes and understand what's going on. We really have to look at at what motivates people, and clearly, nostalgia is a powerful motivator in politics. And my understanding is when the when the term nostalgia first uh, came to be, I think in the early twentieth century, it was considered kind of a, a disease. It was a psychological problem uh, that well, we need to address this nostalgia. But since then, we've worked it into uh, who we are and. You know, nostalgia, we all feel a bit of nostalgia for uh, remembrances of of beautiful, bright days and, you know, wonderful things. Many of us have a vision of how it used to be, and we wish very hard to reinvigorate that beloved picture. We want to get back to that beloved picture, whether or not it ever really was. A certain version of the way things were imagined uh, to be and perhaps should be. That's what we we hope for and, and what motivates us. That's the, the essence of nostalgia, I think. You write about an imagined Midwest. The mythic place is an invented safe space where everyone is white and virtuous. What is this imagined heartland of the 19th century as compared with the uncomfortable reality of, of perhaps how it was? What reality has been erased or ignored in this idealized imaginary place? 
Mm, there's so much. Um, I think before I dive into that, I just want to totally agree with you that I think nostalgia is an incredibly important political and cultural force that needs to be looked at more closely. And we're not talking, like you said, about the small nostalgia for, you know, like Proust Madeleine or like things that people would eat as children, but we're talking about nostalgia for a sort of way of life that's imagined to be, but is no longer. And um, there's been a lot of writers about that, um, including Svetlana Boyum, who's a Russian-American cultural theorist who wrote a lot about nostalgia and she called it retrospective nostalgia when it became part of national myth-making. And she saw it as something that could be easily co-opted by nationalist movements um, and was um, something to really take seriously politically. And so we could also look at some of the public imagery of the Midwest um, linked to that myth-making and um, think of it as having that nostalgic character, that nostalgic quality. And I think the, the key part of it is that as part of the cultural making of that, not so much as a deliberate series of choices, but people are erasing and covering over evidence that doesn't line up with that nostalgic vision. Um, so just to give a little sense of some of that, um, it, it ignores that there have long been multiracial communities all over the Midwest. Um, so from Syrian and Lebanese migrants in the early 20th century who were part of the River Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan, one of the largest Ford manufacturing centers in the world, um, to Mexican laborers in northern Indiana's steel corridor in the 1910s. Um, there were also black farmer settlers like those in Nicodemus, Kansas in the 1850s and 60s um, who were farming their own land um, and building communities. So it tends to erase all of that and so much more, um, including the fact that, you know, some of that vision of white Euro-American settlers that the pastoral vision celebrates tends to portray them as the first farmers. But we also know that um, indigenous groups in the Midwest, like Ojibwa people, um, uh, even as far back as the Cahokia um, settlements in Missouri and Illinois, people were farming in indigenous communities too, so that we could go even further back to portray indigenous farming. Um, but a lot of that is left out. And so I think it's really important to ask questions about what politically that does and whose interests those those narratives serve. Yeah, I don't think we don't hear a lot of uh, nostalgia for the farming of the indigenous people who were here many centuries before the white settlers came in to uh, uh, save them from themselves, as it were. We just we we don't hear that. That doesn't fit in. It just doesn't mm -hmm. fit in. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know that uh, you know a, a lot of what we're talking about has to do with uh, the basis of a lot of colonialism. Uh, but uh, we'll get to that eventually. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're speaking with the authors of a new book, imagining imagining the heartland. I think that's an important word. Imagining the heartland white supremacy and the American Midwest. Our guests are its authors, Britt Halverson and Joshua Reno. And there is that, that image of the, you know, the bucolic uh, Midwest in the 19th century. The rise of the steel industry actually shaped a lot of the Midwest. I wonder if we could talk about that, please, how the demise of the steel industry uh, might explain some of the angry white nationalism that we see today. 
How do these heartland narratives that we're talking about support ingrained systems and ideas of white supremacy? Mm, so I think um, the steel industry, you know, has played a big role in many different parts of the Midwest from um, what I just you know, mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, northern Indiana to parts of Ohio and Illinois and so on. Um, and what this points to is that a lot of the narratives of the Midwest are very homogenizing. They tend to not just um, tend to sort of present a monolithic view of racial and ethnic diversity, but they also present a fairly monolithic view of economic diversity. Like we know that there's been a lot of different practices in different parts of the Midwest from mining in the upper peninsula of Michigan to um, the steel industry and so on. And the steel industry, I think to speak back to some of the things that Josh talked about a few minutes ago has also experienced a lot of deindustrialization, um, shutting down large manufacturing enterprises, like loss of a great number of jobs. There's an anthropologist, Christine Wally, who's written a really excellent book about deindustrialization in South Chicago. Um, it's called Exit Zero, and it's a very deep portrait of the effects of deindustrialization on a community and on a family. And I think one of its really important points to keep in mind and to kind of put all of the things we're talking about into context is that deindustrialization is a global phenomenon. It's not only a US-based phenomenon. And so I think when there's only a focus on a kind of narrative of taking American jobs mm -hmm. um, that in you know, many ways racializes, not just within a US racial system, but in a global racial system racializes that problem. It tends to avoid uh, taking on the bigger question of like, what is that system of deindustrialization a part of? And specifically who benefits the most from it and thinking about it as part of a much more uneven and far more widespread uh, capitalist problem. Yeah, interesting. It's so much easier to do the uh, simple thing to say, oh, everything was good here before those others came here and, mm. and, and took our jobs. It's not even close to reality. It, it, you know, it, it, just to, to say this, it would be like the 19th century image that we have, if not for them. But the industrialization, uh, the, the the capitalist system, uh, you know, it, it, it goes where there's where there's a profit to be made. Let, let's face it; it does that. And uh, uh, it, it, the the farming now we have you know huge agribusiness. The the family farms, you know, people can be nostalgic and miss the family farms, but they haven't made economic sense in a capitalist system for quite a long time, and. I, I do think anthropology, I, I love anthropology myself. I don't read enough of it, I'll, I'll confess. But could, what, what is the importance of, of anthropology in, in looking at history? And, and in answering that question, maybe you could, either one of you talk about the role uh, foundational myth plays in cultures. Mm. Yeah, and I just, um, before I dive into that, I wanted oh, to sure. say I totally agree with you about farming, too, and the small-scale farming. There are small-scale farms, and there are large agribusiness farms. There's a whole range of different ways that farming is 
in global markets and has been for well over a century. So I agree that, you know, farming itself and the the hardships of farmers, uh, especially with the inflation of costs right now that people are experiencing is, you know, not served by those um, homogenizing romantic images either. Um, but to, to think about anthropology, um, I would just highlight two uh, different ideas, I think, that play a role about foundational myths. One is um, the fairly well-known anthropologist of the mid to late century, uh, 20th century, Clifford Gertz, um, famously said that all cultures have stories they tell themselves about themselves. Um, but one of the interesting parts of that is that he said those stories have to get enacted, reproduced again and again to be alive and for people to buy into them. They don't just exist in the ether. And I think that with the Midwest pastoral heartland tropes that we're analyzing in our book, they get reproduced through media stories um, about the Midwest, ranging from stuff in the New York Times to popular movies. And people consume those tales about the region. They absorb parts of their narratives. They sometimes take them for granted. Um, yes. And another part of it that I would just bring in um, from some of the literatures we're immersed in and some of our other work is um, there's a writer, Terrence Ranger, who talked about traditions being invented. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's common to think of tradition as something that just is, you know, it's a thing of the past. It's stable. It's back there. You can access it. Um, but Ranger, he was actually very interested in British colonialism in parts of Africa and Tanzania and Kenya, for example. And he was interested in how British colonists created stories about how uh, African societies worked that were largely fictions. They were largely of their own creation and they were largely filtered through their own cultural preconceptions about those places mm -hmm. because they, they were trying to figure out ways to govern those new colonial territories. And so he called those invented traditions. But I think you can apply that to some of the heartland myths too, by thinking about how those those stories about how things used to be are in some ways invented traditions that have incredible authority. Just, you know, like the stories about the British colonists were trying to come up with because sort of about they try to uphold certain aspects of the social and economic order um, and the people, you know, wield them to very different ends. So it's important to I think those are just two different ideas about foundational myths that are important to pay attention to. Yeah, interesting. Africa. I mean, the 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 racism and uh, colonial colonialism in in Africa for uh, the nineteenth and good bit of the twentieth century. The scramble for Africa and just the the idea that the superiority, the obvious superiority of white uh, European culture uh, and and the gift that it was giving to the uh, cultures of Africa. Whew. Yeah, it ha I guess it included a lot of, uh, necessarily included a lot of uh, myth and nostalgia about how great it was and, and you know, how things are supposed to be. But boy, it leads to a lot of suffering and deaths and destruction and wars. Um, and I, I have to think, as, as people who listen to this regularly uh, know that uh, I, I'm fascinated by the First World War and... Uh, uh, Germany, in particular, uh, felt that uh, they uh, had the best culture and uh, could, uh, you know, just they they and England too, and and France 
and Belgium, for that matter, uh, felt like they could uh, bring uh, a, a, a better uh, culture uh, to the world. Uh, and it, it promotes, and, and going up to World War II, uh, in the lead-up, you, you two point out that Germany and Japan had began promoting the rural heartland as their nationalist ideal before World War II. And how did this compare with the reality of a growing cosmopolitanism in those countries? Uh, and I wonder if you could uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really those three countries, the U.S., Germany, Japan, are, are uh, lots of people have, uh, scholars have talked, have compared them in various ways, but mostly because, you know, compared to countries like um, uh, England, for example, had long been, you know, thoroughly industrialized and urbanized in many, many right, ways. Right. Um, uh, France was still like, you know, very rural um, in, in, in some ways, um, whereas Germany, Japan and the U.S. in the late 19th century, early 20th century went through rapid, rapid industrialization and urbanization like like those, you know, three countries had not experienced. And uh, we forget about the U.S. in, in, in we are not forget about. I, I think it's easy not to put the U.S. in the same terms because of how powerful those uh, forces of the turn of the century really shaped um, our economy and, and our role in the world. But, you know, we were a nation of, of farmers mm -hmm. uh, for a really long time. And um, the, you know, interests of farmers and the interests of uh, landholders, uh, big and small, um, really dominated politics, not only around the Civil War, but even, you know, long after it. Um, so, you know, the shock of urbanization and industrialization mm. affected Germany, Japan and the U.S. in somewhat analogous ways. Obviously, the difference is that um, the U.S. has a history of, uh, of slavery of intense uh, of racism and also of, um, uh, you know, colonization of and the decimation of uh, indigenous population here, which in Germany, it's not exactly like that. Although um, Germany had long, you know, you had in German universities, they, they were talking about, uh, you know, people who would later be famous sociologists like Max Weber, uh, who, you know, later became a kind of influential sociologist started, I think, his dissertation was sort of like, what do we do about these terrible Polish people? Right. Uh -huh, I mean, so right. it wasn't. The U.S. wasn't alone in having visions of others who needed to be colonized or, you know, from civilized or whatever. And same with Japan had, had its own kind of visions of otherness. So in all three countries, at these moments of, of, of growing inequality, these moments of crisis, these moments of radical transformation in these societies, you see heartland imagery popping up. And they're not identical, but they have some formal themes in common, including a kind of rural uh, you know, lost way of life where real Japanese, real right. German, real Americans were hard at work, where they deserved what they had and worked for what they had, which, you know, when you're, you know, when we talk about steel workers, you know, it being attached to Harland imagery, it can sound strange, like a steel worker, say, you know, in, in Pennsylvania or in Indiana or, or wherever is like, you know, in, likes to imagine or, or likes the myth of a kind of like a pastoral uh, rural farmland when when they work themselves in a factory, but you know you you don't need to be a farmer to have that myth speak to you uh -huh. if you you know if you're a, a, a wage laborer working in a, a crappy factory for you know low pay and no benefits. So um, the idea of this rural center that's that's where you have real Japan, real Germany that was appealed to by of course the 
uh, you know, the rising yeah. governments um, at, at the times, the so empire in Japan, the Third Reich in Germany and uh, U.S. Um, during sort of the New Deal uh, and before, uh, there, you know, uh, that sort of solidified in various ways in imagery and um, in, in popular imagination. So, you know, uh, what they share in common is is the intensities with which um, mm-hmm. they, they felt these transformations and some similar solutions. They're not the only solutions to creating an idea of an ideal citizen, but what they all have in common is who it excludes and who it can intensify prejudice and discrimination and oppression against within your own society who doesn't fit that standard of the real citizen, the real German, the real American. Yeah, no question about that. And as I think about many of the soldiers on all sides in the First World War, they had this uh, image that they carried around with them. Like they carry, those are, that's some of the things they carried, the image of what they're defending. They weren't being the aggressors. None of the of the soldiers felt like they, their country was the aggressor. They're defending this image of a peaceful, you know, bucolic village that's being threatened from the those others. And uh, it, it's interesting how important that that narrative that that tool is to belief to carry around in their knapsack along with all the other weapons that they're is they're there to defend they're being good people to defend uh the the uh, peaceful villages and their home and hearth um and you know i i think about there there was that cosmopolitanization cosmopolitanism whatever you want to call it uh, uh, that that people have been uncomfortable with uh and you know, it's not us, it's those other people. And I've noticed as we approach the uh, the off-year election, um, there I've seen TV ads painting city culture as the enemy. The, there's this idealization, which they still use here in 2022, uh, painting, you know, the, the the city culture is the enemy. We don't understand it. It's those other people, people of color. They don't say directly, but you know darn well that's exactly what they're talking about. Uh, is there an underlining theme underneath it that people want to feel like, this is mine, it's not yours? And, and what about this uh, painting uh, city culture as the enemy and, and what we're talking about here? Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, the, there is a kind of uh, common thread to that. But I, I would just sort of add a little bit of nuance where one thing we found in our sure. research is that you certainly get um, white versus black, white versus non-white. Or, you know, you also get um, whites versus sort of, you know, bad whites or corrupt whites or whatever. Right. right? So yes. You can get that can be very well can be um, like, you know, el- uh, coastal elite, yes, you know, liberal white, right? Uh-huh. Um, and and that those often play into those narratives too. The other thing we'd say is that you know, plenty of one of the reasons the justification for the heartland imagery in part is because of this idea of um, the sort of uh, um, where it falls, the kind of unique place it has within American history, where it's it's sort of it did involve the kind of, you know, westward expansion and the frontier, but it was sort of the forgotten frontier of the old Northwest. And, and in many people's minds, the West represents other um, transformations and other places 
um, further, uh, in, you know, toward the Pacific. And, you know, it's not the South, even though, of course, it had a uh, had people who um, sort of uh, uh, were using slavery in some uh, some of the border states of you know Missouri and other places where um, it sort of had Southern uh, like, or people were trying to push it into being more like the South. Right. And it's not quite the Northeast, right? I mean, it's it is in this weird middle ground where um, it seems like it's it doesn't quite fit in a box. Hmm. And I, I say that whether you're saying urban or any really marker of geographic specificity. The nice thing about the Midwest as a kind of symbol is that it can seem to evade any particular marker, which means that, you know, you can think of it as related to Henry Ford or Detroit or Chicago. You can think of it as related to Kansas cornfields. You mm-hmm. can in related to all these things. And that allows it to work, do sort of uh, work in myth in a way that lots of other geographic locations, lots of other um, specific sites, uh, like, say, uh, any given city or, or the east or the south or the west, don't work. Um, so I think that's kind of what we have to say about that, is that the, the Midwest, by not really fitting into any specific geographic uh, marker or seeming to be marked in terms of um, what it is or, or, or can be, allows it to be this really messy picture. And, and I mention this in part because one comment we sometimes get from people when we talk to them about the book is, well, there's other parts of the Midwest that aren't like that. I mean, in other words, they think that what we're saying is there is a real Midwest here that's been propped up, where, it, as you pointed out, you know, imagining the heartland is right. quite key. Right. This is a fantasies, and fantasies like nostalgia don't necessarily match up to reality, and they're, they work even better when they don't sometimes. Oh, for sure. It's the uh, imagination. It's the imagined Midwest. And, you know, I hear people these days saying, you know, the country is so divided, can't we just go to the middle? There, there's a, a longing for that. But I don't think it can really happen. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking with the authors of a new book, Imagining the Heartland. White Supremacy and the American Midwest. Our guests are its authors, Britt Halverson and uh, Joshua Reno, uh, both uh, anthropology professors. America in the 21st century, our cultural definition, is often presented to us on national TV. The advertisers show us what we want to see. I'm interested to, to talk about the uh, cultural messaging that you caught in a two-minute ad for Jeep in the February 2021 Super Bowl involved uh, Bruce Springsteen, who is no racist for sure. He's uh, pretty liberal. He always endorses uh, liberal candidates. But tell us about the uniqueness and, and the importance of the messaging that was in that Jeep ad in February 2021's uh, Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this. I'll, I'll try to be brief in this one, uh, but I. Um, one of the things you see in the ad, right? For those of you who haven't seen it, you can now see it on YouTube quite of easily uh, by you know googling the middle. <laughs> um, what it's you don't see many jeeps, um, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, what you do see are lots of kind of images that suggest kind of. Um, you know, farming, small landholders, um, you know, uh, you know, cornfields, old churches. Um, 
it, it's, it sends out the message of, of the kind of imagined space. It's, it's um, referencing quite, quite clearly. It's hard to miss. But, you know, one of the things that, that you could say about it is what is not there. And, and for one thing, it, it's, a, it's a terrible ad for farming um, because, you know, whatever you see in that ad is nothing like the reality of contemporary farms, like as you were saying uh, earlier. And um, farming today is not only massively industrialized, it also involves in, throughout the country a lot of migrant labor. Oh, true. Um, so, you know, what farms look like in these, you know, signaled to look like in these um, uh, images are not even remotely close to reality. They're about as close to the reality of farming as as Bruce Springsteen is to, you know, as you were saying, the, the cons conservative message about um, real America. But, I, you know, it's interesting. You could say, right, that that's a pretty good analogy. Uh, Bruce Springsteen and, you know, born in the USA is kind of routinely referenced in rallies and, and you know, America first, you know, campaign stuff. Because it it doesn't matter what he actually believes. It matters what it signals, that kind of um, connection to uh, uh, real America, hardworking white America. And similarly, it doesn't matter what the Midwest really is, right? It, in, in the same way that you can use Born in the USA to mean whatever message you want to plug it into, you can also use um, farming in the Midwest, you know, these images that you see in, this, in commercials like this to, you know, uh, equate, you know, a, a middle of real America with uh, um, things that just do not represent actual farming or actual economic lives there. You know, uh, for one thing, you, you talk to a lot of farmers that they're anywhere near um, uh, Detroit. You get farmers who that, that I met when I was doing research there who um, farm in their spare time and then go and work for Fords, as they call it, which is working for the auto plants. Yeah. And so. You know, uh, if you have the privilege of having a farm, it also means that you're that you're you're kind of like moonlighting as a farmer while also working in a factory. Um, and then there's uh, the additional people who are not white who are not shown, right? Um, right. So, so this is what you get in these super commercials and uh, in, in in that commercial. But you get that imagery all the time. The reason it's so familiar, the reason it slides so easily into our imaginations, you don't have to think about it that much, which is the point of a Super Bowl commercial, really, right. Right. is that, um, you know, it, it really, it activates, you could say, uh, you know, this the kind of like parts of our uh, brains that have been kind of, I don't want to say programmed, but have been primed to recognize those images and what they mean and, and how they're meant to speak to us. So uh, you don't need to hit the nail on the head too hard. You could just show a bunch of images without saying, by the way, this is about white people, this is about nostalgia, and this is about right. um, things we, we, we should want again, or we once had, or whatever. But the reality, of course, is it's not like that now, and it was never like that. So it's just grabbing the emotion, which is always a good way to sell products, from cigarettes, whatever, you know, cars, just, just you know, you don't sell, when you're selling steak, it's not the steak, it's the sizzle that you want to get and you know and the, the, the you know the, using the imagination keeping it simple something that everybody can relate to and i grew up in the 50s and 60s and we all grew up being taught the the myth of the melting pot america is a great melting pot what a swell myth that was that that all cultures from all over the world come here that we welcome them they blend nicely together and become one culture.
it's a melting pot. It becomes a new culture. A better, more realistic picture might be a mosaic with many different colors and shapes in which we celebrate the diversity, but no one talks about that. You say whiteness, we argue, is often inchoate and hard to recognize, and that's key to its enduring power, is that it's kind of invisible. You know, we have this myth of a melting pot. It's all just one culture. Everybody should be happy here. How does that melting pot myth lend itself to what you write about, the imagined heartland and thus white supremacy? Well, the kind of invention of the Midwest happens around the city. And, and by invention, I mean people using the term Midwest, right? There have been other terms like Middle West or the Old Northwest, but the people using the term the Midwest and people thinking these are the states that are roughly in the Midwest, although that's often debated, you know, usually is going to include like, say, Michigan, Illinois, uh, um, sometimes people include other states or, or exclude others. But that definition comes in around the same time as the idea of the melting pot comes in, which huh. is the early 20th century. The melting pot idea is attributed to a play from 1908 by Israel Zangwill. And, and Zangwill, excuse me. And the play was, uh, was pretty controversial. And at the time, there were people who uh, didn't like the play and sort of accused it of being too assimilation, you know, assimilating uh, 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 otherness in, in a way that was impossible. So you had sort of racist attacks against it that said, you know, that fanciful picture is is never going to happen because of how different, quote unquote, the races are. Um, but you also had, you know, avid imperialists like Theodore Roosevelt, who loved the play, uh, was a big fan. Yeah. And so, you know, it's another great example of, on the one hand, a cultural text or product like the G-pad that somehow people can see very different things in it, right? Okay, but in terms of what it actually presents, if you look at the play and how it's used since, while it does create the notion of people melting, the, the real question is melting into what? And the play is quite clear, and one of the reasons Roosevelt was a fan, is it's quite clear that who you're, who you're supposed to melt into in this society uh -huh. are people who are dominant Euro-American, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, already present ethnicities who... You know, I, uh, German and, and so forth that were seen to already have been, you know, uh, integral to uh, the American project. And that everyone coming uh, from Ireland, from um, Southern Europe, uh, let alone from everywhere else in the world, um, were to fit themselves in with that specific um, uh, type of citizen, type of American um, identity, which, as, as you say, is kind of unmarked in a sense, right? It's not. Um, it's not meant to be um, uh, an obvious sort of ethnicity. It's meant to be sort of, I am just American, but who's allowed to be just American as opposed to be as opposed to being a hyphenated American? Right. I am a blank American. And it, the fact is, it's often, I think, uh, not often, I don't know, it seems to be common now to assume that if someone uses a hyphen, it's it's somehow by choice that they're they're choosing in terms of, uh, you know, for identity politics or something to say that they are a blank American. Um, that notion of, oh, I'm Irish American, I'm Italian American. It's only a choice if, if you have been seen to have already assimilated, quote unquote, into the dominant um, uh, acceptable uh, white figure. And then you can enjoy the, the, the fun on St. Patrick's Day of saying I'm Irish American or whatever. But in your day to day life, you can just be, as you said, unmarked and just plain white. Um, really, though, the, the problem of the melting pot is, is who it excludes, who it refuses assimilation to. Right. And there are 
was always that exception. And that's one of the reasons that Roosevelt liked it, because he was a thorough imperialist. And he said, you know, he did believe in the civilizing mission of, of whiteness and white supremacy. And so for him, it was quite obvious who it was, uh, as, as it was for Zangwell, it seems, um, who should be assimilated and who couldn't be, who should be civilized instead, and whose land and resources should be taken for productive good whites. Um, and that's the role it played initially. And then it's become sort of sanitized and now it's sort of taught in elementary i remember i was taught it as like an elementary school kid and they don't tell you anything about the context of its emergence they just say here's this nice image of america without telling you the subtext which is that not everyone can be assimilated because of what the dominant form the dominant figure is and and that uh, seems to play right into what we're talking about here uh imagining the heartland it's the imagining of the heartland that that it's this, uh, you know, easy, comfortable place where everybody can, you know, be an American equal to everybody else. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it it's not the case. It's not reality. But this uh, dominant culture, as as you guys say, seems ubiquitous and neutral. But it is not neutral. The book's title is "Imagining the Heartland: White Supremacy." and the American Midwest. And our guests on Keeping Democracy Alive today are Britt Halverson and Joshua Reno, who have, who have written this uh, this book. And in 2017, I believe it was, we saw the angry white supremacists march with their torches, chanting, Jews will not replace us. Most of us would prefer to see that ugliness that blatant racism, violent racism, is outside any kind of American mainstream. But you say replacement theory relies not just on fear of others, but on imagining an ideal community, self, and world in peril. How does that fit in with your thesis about the power and significance of this imaginary heartland? Well, I think it relates back to some of the things we've been talking about, about how this this vision can get politically mobilized in nationalist movements in a variety of different ways. And so I think what Josh has been saying too, that it's this flexible kind of set of of narratives and assumptions that can get interpreted and understood in radically different ways. And I think in extreme white power and white hate groups, there's an idea of a white past that is in threat by multicultural society. And so that's where this idea of heartland imagery sometimes comes in and is directly marshaled to support that view. And I think to a lot of other people, it can read as being just pretty banal and unremarkable, maybe a bit nostalgic, basically harmless. But I think that it can also be pulled toward these more extreme views and used to prop up more ultimately dangerous and and violent movements. Um, So one of the scholars that we cite in the book um, and and that we're in conversation with there is a historian, Kathleen Bilal, who's written a lot about the history of the white power movement in the United States Mm. in the 20th century. And she really argues strongly in that book that it's important not to draw too sharp a boundary between white power groups and the society they're a part of. And really to ask, uh, where do those violent ideas come from? Um, And then what are the relationships between racial inequality in the kinds of cultural storytelling that people do and the more violent manifestations of white supremacy? So 
that's something we do. And certainly we're not saying that the heartland imagery is always turned toward that end, but I think it's important to see the range of ways that it can be used and utilized by groups and in some ways that certainly the, the producers of some of those cultural texts and media forms, you know, whether films or, or commercials or ads would, would never imagine, um, but that they could be turned toward those purposes. And so I think it's, it's important to trace some of those interrelationships between mainstream cultural storytelling and media products and some of the more violent ends. In other words, they're not completely disconnected. And, and certainly uh, the, the threats, the perceived threats to this imagined heartland are not limited to uh, those others, meaning people of color and other countries. But we've seen uh, in recent times uh, fear of different uh, sexual choices, sexual identities that people have. And there's been anger and rage. Uh, people in the uh, U.S. Senate, like Josh Hawley, talk about, you know, white male domination. And this is how it's supposed to be. Any kind of, uh, you know, different sexuality or, ch you know, changing one's, uh, you know, one sex away from uh, the birth sex that uh, happened. It gets these people who imagine it, they turn once again to this image of this is how it's supposed to be. This imagined heartland where men are men and women are women. And that's just the way it's supposed to be. So it's got a lot of tentacles out there. Uh, and I, I look too at the, the threats to the perceived threats to this, you know, normal uh, place, this this idealized heartland. Uh, you know, in the mid 20th century, uh, people uh, of former European colonies rose up to throw off the change, the chains that were put on them from the various colonial empires like India, Algeria, Congo, Vietnam. Uh, the white rulers of these colonial empires were not pleased, and the effects of this are still being felt. And this imagined heartland is seems to be connected and reflexive of the expansion of white America and British colonialism. And this is the culture that's meant to rule the world. Now, how the British ever thought they could rule the world with their boring cuisine, I have no idea. But I mean, at least I can understand <laughs> French cooking is good. Uh, in what ways did the widespread acceptance of this mythic safe place for average but virtuous white people play into this dynamic? Does this imagined heartland serve to legitimize the energy of white supremacist, uh, male-dominant, uh, you know, straight male-dominant uh, people, and imperialism? A lot of questions in there. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, there's a lot to tackle, and I, I'll try to address what we can, but, I mean, the, you know, to your point, that one of the ways you can understand or, or um, make connections between things that uh, haven't previously uh, been connected historically, um, culturally, is, is to sort of think about like, well, what happened around the same time? And that, and, you know, it's not the same thing as saying one, you know, X caused Y, but it shows that they emerged from similar conditions. Right. Uh -huh. And so at the very same time that, that some of this, um, uh, there's a activism around the world in various parts of the world and also, you know, and also domestically. 
um, that you have people uh, of color and you have indigenous people who are actively um, um, contesting and, and uh, drawing attention to um, not only American, but also British and other forms of colonialism and domination, you get sort of this anxiety about mm. um, the imperial project, but you also get people, you could argue, of wanting, whether they knew it or not, new images of of whiteness. And, and that's what they were offered. And one of the ways that was offered was through uh, Heartland imagery. So sure. as, you know, the threat of decolonization or, or anti-colonial um, resistance emerges, so too you get... Um, uh, you know, more and more uh, figures. And it's not long before you get, you know, uh, in seemingly totally disconnected from, right. say, you know, uh, the, the massacre at Budajo in, in, uh, in the Philippines or whatever. Like, you, you know, you, you get these massacres and you get um, this resistance. But uh, separate from that, you also get like Frank Albaum inventing Dorothy Gale as this heroine who's like this ideal kind of white person that uh, speaks truth to power, if you like, and um, and is you know playing speaking and or and and ordinary but in a powerful way, and and you know that that seems like totally totally disconnected from from those things. And we're not saying that like Baum was secretly you know uh, writing a propaganda or something for for that. Although people said he's he was secretly writing propaganda about other things. But you know it, it's like why do these things happen at the same time? Why what cultural work do they serve? And it's not the same mm-hmm. thing as a as you know saying one thing directly caused another thing. Right. Um, but it is clear, and we got you know we we were inspired a lot by the work of Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds in their book Drawing the Global Color Line um, about how at this time you get um, ideas about whiteness and about landholding whites on the rise, um, and you get people worried about things like replacement theory. You get people talking about things like the melting pot. So suddenly there are all these um, cultural ideas and. Um, notions that we still have today that um, we're still um, kind of living under the the cultural fantasies that were generated in that time as a result to your question of um, colonial uh, um, activities um, reaching their obvious limit point um, that was going to happen with World War One most extravagantly, but was already happening through uh, various forms of anti-colonial and decolonial uh, activism. And the people today who who don't fit neatly into uh, imagined uh, uh, images of, of, you know, maleness and femaleness, you know, they're, they're a threat to this same uh, imagined uh, heartland, it seems to me. And they use that. They use that very effectively. It's all these threats from those other people as opposed to us good people from the Midwest who have, you know, this imaginary Midwest. Let me ask just as as we come to the end of the hour, what is your target audience? People are not reading a lot these days. <laughs> what do you hope readers will <laughs> will learn from your book? How possible is it that it may help people question and then and thus begin dismantling the more hidden cultural forces of structural racism? What's your hope? What's your well, I, sure, yeah. I mean, we we hope. Um... When we when we started writing this book, we were, we did talk about writing it for like our neighbors and family members and friends, and it, you know, not to say that they were people we were worried about um, uh, developing you know violent notions of, of white supremacy or white power, but they were you know people who um, were kind of uh, I, 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 I'm not going to speak for Brit. I can tell you like don't usually read the other books that I've written, <laughs> um, and 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 you know I, it's not to say that. Um, you know, they were the target because of some desire to like um, 
uh, you know, um, get people engaging more with like anthropology in general or, or our work in particular. It's more like um, trying to find a way to speak to a broader audience about questions that are obviously really critical for our time that don't alienate them immediately because of, of difficult scholarly language and, and, and jargon and that can invite them in with, you know, examples and stories and descriptive writing that can sort of show um, um, show what, what our argument is without sort of seeming like we're lecturing to them. And the other, the other thing I'd say is that, and, and again, I don't want to speak for Brett, is that um, one reason I personally have faith that the people can not necessarily through our work alone, but by reading more and engaging more with people around them is, is that it's, you know, I don't feel like personally I was um, great at sort of recognizing white supremacy or various forms of racism, like in the academy when I, you know, went to um, mm. undergrad and went to graduate school, that how it could be in the syllabus of a class I was taking without realizing it, how it could be in conversations or ways I was treated as a, as, as a white person in, higher education that if I weren't, I wouldn't have been like, I, I don't think I was always um, aware sure. and cognizant of, of how that was happening or how I might be contributing to it. And I, I do think that um, a consciousness or consciousness raising is important because I know I personally have benefited from it, even though I am seemingly a highly educated, like whatever um, uh, cosmopolitan elite <laughs> or whatever, like all the sort of fantasies of the people who are um, uh, uh, lecturing down to everyone else in America right. who are real Americans, you know, and I also myself, I come from like rural us. I, you know, I don't come from an academic family or an academic town. Like I, 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 you know, worked crappy jobs. I um, studied a landfill for my research because I wanted to understand what, you know, really crappy job. Like I, 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 I don't uh, identify with um, a, a lot of the stereotypes of academia, which makes me even more desire to um, create conversations with people who feel uh, they haven't, they're not being spoken to. And I, and I don't mean to reproduce the story of like, you know, the flyover areas where Democrats don't go or where, you know, that Hillary avoided prior mm -hmm. to coming to the election, that, you know, the anthropologists or academics are doing the same thing. I do think there's a broad analogy though of like, trying to have bigger conversations and trying to have more um, discussion on difficult topics that are part of our history. Yeah. And I would just, if I could just sure. add to that as someone uh, myself, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan and um, also to parents who were not from the U S and I think I've long been aware of some of these like very homogenizing views of the Midwest as non-global insular as um, you know, that I was always aware from a very young age that people had very strong views of the Midwest and they, even if they had never really spent much time in Midwestern communities, often had a feeling they already knew what they were like. Yeah. And I was very curious about where that came from. And so I think this book is also something I, I hope that, that people who grew up in Midwestern communities who spent time there will recognize this cultural phenomenon because they have certainly experienced it if they've traveled and moved around and it's part of that sort of media saturation of images of the heartland that people are convinced they already know Midwestern uh -huh. spaces even before they've set foot in them. Yeah, it's an idea we carry with us. Fascinating stuff. And I think this is an, a very important point in our history where we're looking at what causes, you know, white supremacy and, and you know, really getting to a place where we might be able to possibly make some changes. 
Huh, it could happen, maybe. The book is, thank you guys so much for being with us. The book is called Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy and the American Midwest. Uh, our guests have been the authors, Brett Halverson and Joshua Reynolds, and it's published by University of California Press. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Once again.